Today's a, also kicks off the season of Lent, uh, starts our, begins our journey towards Easter, and we're excited about Easter coming up because I don't know if you heard the rumor, but that the grave is empty. Amen. That there's been a resurrection. Yeah. And so, so we're, getting, we're getting set to, to celebrate that. So as Christians, we live not with despair. We don't live in wishful thinking. We don't sidestep the realities of things going on the way in the way of the world. But we live with a hope and a faith. Christians are, are the kind of people who can go right through the, the, the blood and the guts and the pain to get to the other side. Christians are people who know that we got to go through Good Friday to get to Easter Sunday. Uh, and so for thousands of years, Christians have uh, celebrated, some Christians have celebrated this season of Lent as a time of just preparation for our hearts and, and prayer. Um, I found this little video I want to play for you. It's just, a, it's really a prayer and it's very short, but it's just, it meant so much to me. And if it resonates with you, just pray it along with it. Let's, let's watch this. Now, here's something interesting. Typically, Lent is, a, is typically associated with a time of fasting. A lot of people will fast things during the season of Lent. Uh, it's, it's a time of introspection, as I said, and prayer. But it's, a, it's this idea, the idea of fasting is this idea of intentionally setting aside, you know, creature comforts uh, of everyday life in order to devote ourselves undistractedly uh, toward a time of devotion um, and a kind of discipline of the flesh. Well, I don't know about you, but the uh, past 12 months uh, have been one long exercise in fasting uh, creature comforts. Uh, you know, so, so there's in a world that is filled with so much despair right now and so much hopelessness, this Lenten season, I was in prayer about this, and, and this Lenten season, I really felt I want to kick things off by inviting us to fast something a little different. I'm inviting all of us to fast hopelessness for Lent. Anybody with me? 
Fasting hopelessness for Lent. So that's, that's where we're going to kind of kick things off with today. We're going to spend a couple weeks talking about this. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have it, <clears throat> turn over to 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. That's in the Old Testament. 1 Kings. We're going to look at somebody today who uh, this person experienced the pinnacles of success followed by just the deepest valley of hopelessness. And we're going to see what lessons uh, that we can gather from the way that God responded to this person and how this person uh, learned to give up hopelessness out of, out of their faith. And so uh, let's start this way. Think about a great victory you had one time. Think about the greatest victory you've ever experienced in your life right? That, I mean, that emotional high is, is wonderful, right? When you're going through that thing, you feel so good. Everything, everything looks good. You're in a good mood. You're nicer to other people. You feel better. Everything tastes better. Life is sweet. And then invariably it happens. One uh, sourpuss enters your life, enters your room, and tells you how bad everything really is. One critic comes in and points out the flaw in the plan, one well-meaning person shoves his way into your party and uh, tells you something that they just feel you really have a right to know. You, you, know the, you know that person. You just really have a right to know this. You know what I'm talking about. It, it's, it's, it hits you like this guerrilla-style ambush, and all it takes is that one naysayer, one word, one threat, one lie, and you're, you know, this balloon that you're, you're flying away on just crashes to the ground. And if it's never happened to you, you just haven't lived very long. You're probably much, much younger than I am. Um, so there was once in the ancient world, Middle East, this man named Elijah. And Elijah's no ordinary guy. Elijah, he is a prophet. This guy is a full-blooded, bona fide prophet of God. Uh, the kind of prophet, like, when people saw coming, they ran the other way, right? This wasn't like the feel-good prophet. This, this guy, he lived in a time uh, when the king was, the king and the queen were pagans, and they had actually outlawed worship of the one true God. Uh, but Elijah's fearless. He speaks uh, God's words to people. He, he's amazing. He can tell the future. He can do miracles. He once commanded it not to rain for three years, and it didn't. Uh, and then he prayed for rain, and it stormed. Uh, he, he once outran a chariot for 28 miles. He, uh, he can part rivers. He walked down the middle of, of the, on dry land. He once raised a child from the dead. Uh, he gets fed by ravens. He gets fed by angels at one point in his life. And if that wasn't cool enough, Elijah is one of only two human beings in the entire Bible who, it says, didn't die. <laughs> like, that's pretty hardcore. One of only two people that, that actually didn't die. And God just sort of took him up to heaven in this fiery chariot. That's, that's a great exit. So Elijah is one of these great heroes of our faith. And so it's sort of ironic at this moment, it's one of his greatest victories here in, in 1 Kings. He experiences a time of just crushing self-doubt. In 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, which we won't, look, we won't read, but I'll just kind of summarize, he experiences the, the greatest victory of his prophetic career. He challenges 450 uh, prophets of the false god Baal, this pagan god Baal. He f challenges to him, them to a showdown. He invites them all to come to this place called Mount Carmel, which sounds buttery and delicious, by the way. Um, he, they all come to this place, Mount Carmel, and Elijah says, let's build two altars 
you build it to your God, Baal, and I'll build one to my God. And we're going to put a big fat bull on top. And, and Elijah says, you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who enters by fire. That's the one that's truly God, right? And Elijah's landed all on the line here. He's a man of great faith. The prophets of Baal, they do their thing. They build their altar. They put the bull on there. They start praying and singing. They are like whipping themselves. They're flogging themselves. They're dancing and yelling for hours and hours. And Elijah starts talking smack to them, right? He's, he, he starts taunting them. He's like, shout louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe your God is in deep thought. He might be on the potty. He literally says that. He's, he, know, he might be traveling. He might be taking a nap. If you yell louder, maybe he'll wake up. And of course, Baal never answers because there is no Baal. <laughs> and then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah, he does it in style. He doesn't just call down fire, which would have been impressive. He tells them first to pour about 100 gallons of water on the altar, on the, the wood and the rocks and the, the bull. And then he has them do it two more times just to make sure the wood is really good and soaked in. And then he calls down fire. He prays and God answers. Fire comes down out of heaven and it consumes everything. It consumes the bull. It consumes the altar, even the rocks and the wood, everything, even the other altar to the other God. It consumes that one. And the crowd goes wild and Elijah is a great hero, right? The crowd, yeah, they even take the prophets of Baal and they kill them all. That's when you, mo you that moment you realize like your congregation is, has, has uh, perhaps turned into a mob. Uh, okay, let's keep it Jesus-y, but too late. Um, the odds were 450 to 1, and Elijah beats the odds. He has literally a mountaintop experience. As I said, there's one problem. Israel has this king and a queen who were not so happy with Elijah's success, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Jezebel, uh, you know, that name is synonymous today, you know, with kind of like someone who is not the kind of person you want to be best friends with. Margaret Feinberg, the writer, she, uh, she wrote, you know somebody's really bad in the Bible when nobody today names their children after them, and you don't see a whole lot of little Jezebels running around preschool. Um, so when Queen Jezebel finds out what Elijah has done, Let's look at what happens in chapter 19. Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me. If by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Referring to the prophets of Baal. And it says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Even though God had demonstrated an amazing, miraculous event right before this. And throughout his life, he had been demonstrating miracles, constantly provided for Elijah. Elijah has here what, you know, most scholars would say is a complete nervous breakdown right here. He, he didn't just run out of town. It says that he ran for 40 days. That's a panic attack, right? If you ever had like an anxiety attack or panic attack, you just feel like running for 40 days. Elijah, he does it. He runs and he runs and he runs and he runs, it says, to a very special place called Mount Horeb, or it's also known by another name, Mount Sinai. Sinai. That ring any bells? This is the same Mount Sinai that the children of Israel came to 
hundreds of years before when they were rescued from Egypt by God. And they came to this mountain and there they witnessed God in all of his huge, mighty power and glory. He revealed himself in the pillar of fire. He revealed himself in earthquakes and thunder. The Ten Commandments came down and all that stuff. Remember when Charlton Heston threw them down and he had to give him ten more and that all happened there. Mount Sinai. So this is a place filled with deep meaning and history for the Jewish people. Verse 9. There at Mount Sinai, he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Anybody ever wake up in the morning and uh, just the thought of facing the day makes you just want to pull those covers right back over your face and stay in that cave for a day, two, a week, month, something like that? That's kind of what Elijah does here. And it's like a, a God comes along and he just very gently pulls those covers down from his face and he asks him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Anytime God asks a question, we should always remember he's omniscient. He knows the answer already, doesn't he? Uh, so he's, he's asking for our benefit or for the benefit of the person so they can better understand what's going on and better understand themselves. Elijah answers, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down their your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, Elijah's not just being like whiny here. Sometimes we kind of give him a, a hard pass at this, but Elijah has done all the right things. He has remained true to God in the face of insanity in his nation. He has bravely spoken the truth to kings in power who were greedy and corrupt. He puts his trust in the Lord. He, put that, he puts that faith on the line in a very public way where failure would have meant humiliation and death. He puts it on the line. He's done all the right things, and he's been successful. He's, he's been obedient. But for Elijah, there's no glory. He doesn't have his own channel. He's, there's no victory parade. There's no sense of happiness. He's tired and exhausted. He feels that all his labors are absolutely fruitless. He has been a voice in the wilderness in this nation of his, and no one is listening. So after running for more than 40 days, he just sort of vents. And, uh, and I like that God just sort of lets him have kind of like a good cry. <laughs> he just lets it out. At this point, Elijah, at one point, he, he even says, just kill me. He's, he views death as a step up at this point from this thankless life. He's in a depression, obviously, emotionally, uh, and, and even literally, uh, the, you know, the writer makes, I, I think, brilliantly points out the fact that he is in a cave. He is literally in a depression in the earth. Um, that's what a cave is. And so, like many people, he may have had this public success, but privately he wonders if he has made any difference at all. Well, what happens next is God answers his cry, but he does it in a really unusual way. And some of you know the story, but let's look through it. In verse 11, God answers, go out and stand before me on the mountain. 
the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast, the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake and the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. Some of your translations will say a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So after all the fireworks here, Elijah hears God speak to him. Some of us have gone through some fireworks this week, this month, this year, for the past year. And when we get in that still, quiet place, we can sense the Spirit of God saying, what are you doing here? Now, why does God speak in the quiet of a whisper? I think it's because as powerful as he is, he can speak any way he wants to, but more than just powerful, God is personal. He's personal. And God asks Elijah the same question a second time, and that's really unusual. What are you doing here? When God repeats a question in Scripture, pay very close attention because repetition, as we're going to see, is not God's normal MO. It is not. So when he does repeat himself, he is making an important point. And how Elijah answers is just as fascinating. When we get to 14, this may sound familiar, Elijah gives the exact same answer word for word. Word for word, he gives the same answer that he gave him the first time. Why? Because his brain be broke. <laughs> That's my spiritual opinion here, right? He is stuck. <laughs> Elijah, <laughs> you, some of you know what I'm talking about. He is going nowhere. He is in a loop from which he cannot escape. This is, this is by the way, textbook depression, textbook anxiety, okay? None of what Elijah said, again, is actually untrue, though. Uh, Elijah had obeyed God. Elijah had given his all. People had deserted him, and now his life is in danger. The problem with Elijah is that he never mentions what God is doing or what God has done. Notice it's all about himself, what he's done, what he's accomplished or not accomplished. And he's no longer factoring God in his thinking. He's not acknowledging God's power. He's not acknowledging God's love. I came across this quote from, from a commentator uh, just this weekend as I was kind of just doing a little extra study on this and it was too late to add it to the slide. So I'm just going to read it to you. This guy, Ian Proven, he writes in his Understanding the Bible Commentary, I found this to be shockingly insightful. Uh, about what's going on in Elijah's head and perhaps maybe in your head too sometimes. He said this, somewhere between the exaggerated self-loathing and the exaggerated self-importance, both partly the product of selective memory, there is a quiet place where Elijah must rest content with who he is and what he has done. The key is to remember his past with the Lord. And get this, Elijah must be content with being part of the plan and not the plan itself. That alone is the, worth the price of admission today, guys, right there, that sentence. This is why we are all Elijah. Have you ever been there? Most of us have at one time or another. We'd like to think that, you know, we're gonna, we reach some pinnacle of faith where we reach and 
Once we reach that pinnacle of faith, we're never going to be discouraged. We're never going to have to face discouragement again. We're never going to have to experience that gnawing voice of hopelessness. But the truth is, we have to admit to one another, is that every one of us go through these seasons. Every one of us. The newest Christian to the, the most spiritual person you've ever met. We go through these seasons. It's what we do next that makes the difference between overcoming and remaining in despair. Uh, I think I was thinking about the Psalms. I love the Psalms. And uh, this is also, this, this season of Lent's a great time just every day to go through some of the Psalms because many of them were written by David, uh, either when he was like a shepherd or when he was on the run or even when he was king. But he's such a real human being. He's full of faith and he's full of his own doubts. And he's on the mountaintop one second. He's down in the valley the next second. It, I mean, look at, here's some examples of what I'm talking about. Psalm, Psalm 9, he says, you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Woohoo! Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 10, why, oh, Lord, do you stand afar off? Psalm 115, the Lord remembers us. He'll bless us. Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? <sighs> Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble. And Psalm 10, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? <laughs> Literal, word for word. This, this is the same man. Some, some days, for me, this is the same day of <laughs> these things happen. I understand. <laughs> You read the Psalms and there's these wild pendulum swings, right? Between, between hope and hopelessness, faith and faithlessness. It's almost, you know, it's, it feels schizophrenic, but it's just, I think it's the human experience. It's the human experience. I think that's one of the reasons why the Psalms resonate so much with so many of us. Because this is unvarnished reality of what life throws at us, right? This is unvarnished reality. This isn't like church talk. This is unvarnished reality of what life throws at us. What ends up happening with Elijah is that God reassures him that he is actually not alone. Because that's one of his big things is that he just feels alone. He's like, I think I'm the only person here who's sane. And what does he say in verse 15? The Lord told him, go back the same way you came. Travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel, to replace you as my prophet. So the Lord basically tells him, Elijah, you, you can't stay here. There's more for you to do. You got kings to anoint, man. The mission continues, and you can't do any of it sitting here. And yeah, there's going to be people who oppose you, but what does he say in verse 18? Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. <laughs> Just keep going, keep going. He thinks he's alone. Turns out there's 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And God says, you are not alone. In fact, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing you a partner. He says by the name of Elisha. And this guy, you're going to mentor. You're going to mentor him and he's going to replace you someday. And what we read in the story is that in that moment, God and his love and his kindness, he reaches down and he ministers to Elijah. He heals him mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. 
because he's a healing God. Elijah's been given a second win here. He returns to work and ultimately remembers that it's God's work. It's not his work. It's not his that he was doing. And, you know, it's in the same way. We come together on Sunday mornings. We come together. We gather to worship, to encourage one another. We say we come here. The reason we come to church, the reason why we, we belong to a church and not just like, you know, listen to good preaching or whatever on TV, we belong to a church because we help each other become more like Jesus. That's why we're part of a body. We are called to help each other become more like Jesus. And we come to church to be renewed and to be reminded of what's important in life. We come to be reminded of what really matters, what really matters. And then we leave here and we return to our lives, but we remember that ultimately our lives belong to the Lord's. That's a price, that's priceless. Now, here's what's fascinating to me here. Uh, Notice how God does not respond to Elijah. I love this. God does not begin by addressing Elijah's spiritual problems. Like we would think he would. You know, he's God. He's going to keep it religious. No, no, no. A few verses earlier, God restores Elijah physically with food, with water, with sleep right? He turns the power on at home. <laughs> he, uh, Elijah has been running on adrenaline, pure adrenaline here, and he is strung out. So, what's God's answer? It, we, are, we learn that God sends an angel to him with something to eat. He had Elijah take a nap. <laughs> he takes a nap. Sometimes we simply need to, to give our attention to a few practical matters, right? Get some rest, feeding ourselves properly, taking care of ourselves, exercising, take care of ourselves. The second thing, God does not chastise Elijah for being afraid, for being weak, for being immature. What does God do? He chooses to emphasize his mission, his ability and his strength rather than focus on his failure. God doesn't come in and remind Elijah, yeah, you're right. You were kind of a loser. No, no, no he builds him up. And the third thing, God does not compare Elijah to any other prophets who were, you know, the prophets who were getting it done. <laughs> he's like, he doesn't come in and go, Elijah, look. I mean, look, my other guy, Dave, he, he's not belly aching like this. No, no, God reassures Elijah of his great purpose. Why? Because God is intensely personal. He's nothing if not personal. He knows exactly what Elijah's going through. He knows exactly what he needs to be healed And there's this sense in this story, if you look at the words of God and what he does, God is very patient, he's very loving, but he's also very firm, isn't he? He, He's not real gushy here. There's not a whole lot of gushy words from God, but there is a clear demonstration of his, his reassurance that Elijah's not alone. It's exactly what Elijah needed. It's exactly what Elijah needed. God is so awesome, isn't he? Oh, man. When this great prophet found himself... A, a broken, exhausted, lonely man, thinking everything was over, God let him rest. He fed him. He listened to his heartache. And then when he had his head back on straight, he puts him back in the game. One of the things I, I want to point out 
that I love about this story is the reminder of how important it is to, to slow down and listen, to have a relationship with God. After all the earthquakes and the thunder and the fire, uh, the voice of God is compared to a gentle whisper or a still small voice in some of your Bibles. Uh, the literal translation is a very strange Hebrew phrase. The, the phrase actually is the sound of sheer silence. God speaks in sheer silence. I mean, how mind-boggling is that? And believe me, this goes against type for this day and age for the way God's talked to people. It was always in thunder and this kind of stuff. For this God to speak in the silence is hard for us to comprehend. I think that's why some translations use gentle breeze or, or the sound of a whisper, because it almost doesn't make sense. He spoke in silence. God is present. He's present in our silence. He's present. Now, here's the problem. Some of you are like all cool with that. And you're all enlightened. But uh, how many of us are completely bat crazy scared of silence? Um, I, I personally know a, a number of you who are like me, and you start twitching after about 45 seconds of silence. If I just said, let's be quiet for a minute, you'd last about 20 seconds, right? Before you're like, this is weird, because noise is addictive. It is. It's difficult for some of us to be without it. The Psalms say, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. We, and we say we want God to speak to us. Every single one of us, don't we? Say, like, how do I hear the voice of God? I'm, I've been praying all the time. I keep asking. I'm, keep, I'm trying to hear the voice of God. But we're, are we ever slowing down enough to tune in? I remember there was a time last year, you know, right at the kind of the height of all of this stuff. Uh, I was just, you know, there was such a, such a hurricane of voices and, and, and noise in, in the world. And I needed to hear from the Lord. I literally uh, got to take a couple of days and like go out in the middle of the woods to a cabin, you know, just where there like is no noise. And it was amazing. It was amazing how that, that very physical place of silence allowed me to hear from the Lord. It allowed me to even pray in a way that I, I found that I, I had trouble praying anywhere else. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, but we might ask it this way. Does your schedule, does your time, your life look like that of a person who really wants to hear God's voice? Because if we say we want God to speak to us, but we're never listening, if someone just observed your day and they watched you, would they come to the conclusion that you're desperate to hear God's voice or that you're just too busy to listen? I'm talking to myself too. This is all of us, right? So Elijah witnessed fire fall from the sky, and that was an amazing miracle right there at that altar when he saw that. But that, that one-time event, that actually isn't an accurate picture of daily life with God. I think that's important for us to to be remind ourselves of, because sometimes we read these amazing stories, you know, the awesome miracle of the fire coming down. And so that's what we pray for. God, give me a fire falling from heaven experience. But that's not actually an everyday experience. It didn't fall every day in Elijah's life, right? That was a, that was a special event. And so experiencing a relationship with God turns out to be a lot more like waiting on the whisper than calling down fire. It's a lot more like waiting on the whisper Psalm 27 says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Where does the strengthening come? The waiting, 
the waiting, waiting on the whisper. One last point I want to make today. I think this is something important that God is showing Elijah in this encounter. I mentioned earlier that God ran to the the mountain of God, Horeb or Sinai, famous mountain. I don't think that was by accident. Elijah knew where he was going. You see, I I I believe that Elijah, what he wanted deep in his core was for God to show up in the way that he had before. He wanted God to repeat himself with those signs and wonders, to recapture something that he had once felt. And he arrives there at the mountain And God says, he's not just saying, what are you doing here? I think God is saying, what are you doing here on this mountain? Why are you here where I led the people of Israel many years ago? Why are you looking for me in the earthquake, just like the Exodus story? And Elijah's hiding for sure, but he's also thinking he can recapture something like it was in the old days. And I, I think it's interesting that God does something really cool. He does all the big signs. He does it, he, the earthquake and the wind and the, the fire, just to show that he can. He can do all that like he did hundreds of years before for Moses and the Israelites. But then he teaches Elijah that that is not where the voice of God is today. God's saying, I can do all this, but it's not the point. Those, those wonders are not the point That was yesterday, and today I want to talk to you quietly and personally. And God's taking their their relationship to a whole new level. It's a very personal relationship. It's 2021, and uh, most of us are, are licking our wounds from this past week. Some of us are still nursing wounds from 2020, and that's understandable. But, you know, some of, us are, some of us are still licking wounds from five years ago. I know folks who are still harboring resentments from injuries done to you or spoken to you decades ago. And some of you, you fled to this cave and you've decided to just kind of wait out the party till the world ends. And God is asking us, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What grand high point of yesteryear are you waiting to see repeated? And maybe for some of us, it's time to leave the cave and start listening for his voice that has been whispering to us the whole time. He's always, he's always communicating with us. Some of us have run back to Sinai. We're seeking God in all the places and all the moments and all the moves of God where we once experienced that glory years ago. Man, we're like, those days were like thunder and lightning. That's got to be where God still is, right? And so we, we try to recapture that moment that was awesome. When we felt really inspired, it might have been the time when God met us. It might have been a, a, sincere, a, a genuine moment where God met us. And we want to stay there. We want to stay at Sinai because he did something amazing. And God says, what are you still doing here? I'm already over there. C.S. Lewis, he wrote, it would be rash to say that there is any prayer which God never grants, 
But the strongest candidate is the prayer we might express in the single word, encore. How should the infinite repeat himself? Our God is such a creative God. He's the God of creativity. He, he can't not create, right? He's, he rarely repeats himself in the way he works in our life. Uh, you know, when you think back to the miracles he's done for you, the things he's done for you, how many times has he, he come f- through for you in a new and different way? It wasn't the way you expected. It was way out of the box that you thought he was going to do it again. And he comes through in these different ways. I know that in my life is so true. And so instead of wandering in circles and asking God to repeat his tricks, what if we stop and we trust that he has an answer? He has an answer for your life today, right where you're at, even if it looks really different from anything you've ever experienced before. What if we choose to fast our need for God to repeat himself just as we are committing to fast our despair and fast our hopelessness? How do we do that? In the end, God asks for one thing from us, trust. He asks for your trust. He doesn't ask you to have it all figured out. He definitely doesn't ask you to have him all figured out. He just asks for your trust. That's what he wants. Even when others come against you, even when you don't see it, he's working. He never stops. He never stops working. Even when you don't know how you're going to keep up this pace you've been on, trust. Even when you're not really sure if, if what you're doing is making any difference. Maybe you're a parent. You don't know if you're making a difference in your kid's life or you're, you're at work or school or with friends or whoever it is or whatever it is, your ministry. Trust. You trust. He gives you your marching orders, and you trust him. You trust him. Well, in the end, it says Elijah stood up. He wrapped his mantle around himself, and he embraced his new mission. His life was not over. His ministry was not a failure. God had a new direction for his life. God sends him off on a new mission, invigorated at peace and full of faith. What? are you doing way over there? God is asking. Wherever you are, God has something for you here today. It's nothing you got to go run after and try to recapture. He has something for you now, today, where you're at. And it is a new thing. Isn't that good news? It's a new thing, right? And yeah, so right now, you know, here in February 21, whatever today is, you might need to take a little moment to rest, to replenish yourself, to heal physically, get that sheetrock put up again, right? Heal emotionally. But pretty soon, it's going to be time for you to walk out of the cave. It's going to be time to walk out of the cave, to leave that comfortable place where the miracles happened hundreds of years ago and trust in him to complete that fresh work that he's starting in you today. Amen? 
today we're going to take communion together. And hopefully you've got uh, communion elements in front of you. Let me see. Let me come right over here and grab uh, this one right here. Oh, if you don't have communion elements, if you didn't grab one when you come in, there's some on this little table right here. Mr. Wayne is right in the back here. If anybody needs some, you can raise your hand. I'll get one to you. All right, we're going to do this. If you're at home, we want you to partake of this with us. Uh, Just grab some Wonder Bread and some juice or whatever you got. There's not an extra special power in the grape. Um, And if you have this, the juice just pulls out. You can be taking that off. Let's just hold it for a second. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll take it together. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Dear Heavenly Father, we we stand humbly before you, Father. We open ourselves up to you, Lord. We need you. Lord, we are desperate creatures. We are desperate without you. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us in our brokenness, in our noise, in our distraction, in our anguish, in our sin, in our failures, our mistakes, Lord. And we need you, Lord, daily to ground us, to center us. We need you to to give us a place that's home. We need you to hold us close, Lord. We need your love to sustain us and guide us and heal us, Father. Lord, right now, we come to you united as your church, as your children in communion. We take this bread and this cup in remembrance of the sacrifice that you made for us. The sacrifice you made so that we could be healed, so that we could be set free, so that we could be reconciled to you, Lord. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's take the the bread. the body of Christ given for you. Mm. The blood of Christ shed for you. Let's take the cup. Mm. Lord, we want to be in tune with you. We want to be fully connected We want to be dialed in, Lord God. We don't want to be scattered and depressed. And so we need you. It's our confession, Lord God. You said that when we are weak, you are strong. We fully acknowledge our desperation and our weakness without you. We need your strength to make us strong. We thank you, Lord God, for healing in our hearts, replenishing in our souls, 
setting us back on the road so that we can do what you've given us to do for your kingdom, for your name's sake. In the mighty name of Jesus, all the people said, amen, amen, amen. Hey, will you stand to your feet and let me bless you today? My friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his favor to you and grant you peace in this day we're living in. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Thank you. Bye-bye.